Lord God, it is you that we would we would hear this morning. We want to see you, that we might have strength and courage to follow you, to serve you. And so, Lord God, work in our hearts this morning as we encounter your word, that it might change us, that it might grow us to follow you more closely, Lord Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. C.S. Lewis, in his book, uh, Mere Christianity, which a couple of us are reading right now, he says this on a chapter on Christian marriage. He says that those who are in love have a natural inclination to bind themselves by promises. Those who are in love have a natural inclination to bind themselves by promises. He says, love songs all over the world are full of vows promising eternal constancy. This is something we see in, in, in the world, he says. I mean, think about some songs from the 1980s that you might know, that great decade. Uh, yeah! When, <laughs> they were six months that were really great in my life. You know, when a man loves a woman, he'd give up all his comforts and sleep out in the rain if she said that's the way it ought to be. When a man loves a woman. Or think about it, this one that says... Um, keep loving you. And I'm going to keep on loving you because it's the only thing I want to do. I don't want to sleep. I just want to keep on loving you. And I meant every word that I said when I said that I loved you. I meant that I loved you forever. I'm, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> but C.S. Lewis was right that when, when, some, when you ha- are in love with someone, you love somebody, there is a natural inclination to bind yourself to them by promises. You see, real love makes covenants. Real love makes covenant, covenants. And why? Because covenants show the trustworthiness of the partner. They show trustworthiness, and this is exactly what's happening in Joshua. And this is what happens in the ancient world when they would make covenants. There was this thing called Hittite, Suzerain, and Vassal Covenant Treaties. Hittite, Suzerain, and Vassal Covenant Treaties. This is a big word. Suzerain sounds like a, a vuvuzela that you, want, that you play in the soccer game. But the, the Suzerain is the king. And the vassal were the servants. And in these ancient uh, king and servant treaties that were made, the point of it was to show the trustworthiness of the king. This is the way the ancient world works, and this is exactly what is going on in Joshua 24. You see, in Joshua 24, there are all the parts of these covenant-making ceremony. In these ancient covenants, there were these parts. There was the preamble, which goes first. We see it in verse 2. There's the historical prologue, which is we see in verses 2 through 13. There's the stipulations and the conditions of being in a covenant, which we see in verses 14 through 18. And then there are the curses for disobedience in the covenants, which we see in verses 19 through 21. And then there are the witnesses to the covenant which we see at the end of this chapter. And so this is how we're going to look at it. We're going to look at these parts of the covenant which are here. And first we see, in this covenant that is being renewed, there is the preamble, as in all these covenants. The preamble just simply explains who are the two parts in the covenant. So verse 2a explains... 
Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. This is the preamble. It is saying who the parties are. It is the Lord. That is the God, the I Am, the eternally self-existent God. I Am, this God. But also it is the Lord, the God of Israel. That is Yahweh, the personal name, who is the God of His people. Here in the prologue we see that He is transcendent and He is a personal king. That's what we see here. And plain and simply, when you're putting a covenant together, the, pre- the, pro- the preamble is important just because you need to know who the two parts of the covenant are. You know, if you get married, you don't, after you make a covenant, you're, you're not at the uh, wedding party afterwards and say, what was your name again when you get married? You, it's just the basic part. You have to have the preamble stating at least who the sovereign is in the covenant. And we see here that the sovereign is the Lord God of Israel. He is transcendent and He is the personal God. Then we see after the prologue, it gets into, uh, the, excuse me, after the preamble, it gets into the second point, which is the historical prologue. The historical prologue is basically this. It's the king explaining his history. How his past history shows his trustworthiness. This is what the prologue is about. One person explained the historical prologues this way. He said, The historical prologue reviewed the former relationship between the two parties. It recounted the king's past help in order to remind the servants of the king's trustworthiness and the debt of loyalty that the servants owed to the king. See, the prologue is to show the past trustworthiness of the king. And so you look in these following verses, verses 2 through 13, and we see exactly that. God is showing that he has a history of saving grace. And that his, he is the great king and his saving grace is really, really great. You see, he starts off at, in verse 2. And 2b, explaining his saving grace and how great it is. Look at it. He, he starts recounting his history with them. Verse 2, he says, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, that far river, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. And then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river. You see right here what God is saying is that there is the grace of his electing of Abraham. Because what does it say about Abraham right here in this passage? Abraham was an idol worshiper. He was not honest Abe. He was a bad man. What is the epitome of a sinful person in the Bible? It is an idol worshiper. And this is who Abraham is before God calls him. But he says, I took him out. I called him. I took him. He is the epitome of a sinner. But God, in his grace, said, I took Abraham while he was an idol worshiper. That is grace right there. When you take somebody who doesn't deserve it, who wasn't looking for God, and brings him to 
God. Right at the beginning, we see it. I don't know if when you were a kid, you would play pickup games of sports uh, in the yard at school or wherever. And what we would always do when I was a kid, we would have two team captains. And so you have the team captains, they go up, they're there, and then all the kids, the other kids are lined up, right? And the two team captains, what do you do? You start choosing who you want on your team. And who do you choose first? You choose the the tall, big guy. Or you choose the one who's really fast. You choose the one who's really athletic. You know who are the last two who always got picked last? It was the weak ones. It was Eye Patch Boy. Or it was the kid with the inhaler. And this is the way we work, is that when we think about choosing people for our team, we choose the ones who are strong, we choose the ones who are smart, we choose the ones who are beautiful. We do not choose eye patch kid. But this is not the way it works with God. He says in his scriptures in 1 Corinthians that God actually, he chose the weak, he chose what was foolish, he chose what was low and despised to despise to shame what was strong. He did it so that nobody could boast that I am God's people, that it is all of God's grace. As Ephesians says, He chose us in Him before the foundation to the praise of His great, incredible, glorious grace. We are so different than God. He chooses Abraham while he is still an idol worshiper far away in a distant land. You see, this is encouragement for us because it tells us that it is only by the grace of God that any of us are saved. And we all know people in our lives who seem like they are the epitome of idol worshipers, the epitome of somebody who is lost. But God is the God who saves Abraham when he is an idol worshiper. And God is the God who can save your loved ones who are running away from him. This is the grace of God's electing of Abraham while he is still an idol worshiper. Further then we see after that he he goes on and he says in verses 5 through 8 that there is the grace of God in redeeming Israel from their slavery. Verses 5, he says, And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of them. And afterwards, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, He put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and He made the sea come upon them and cover them. Egypt was a strong slave master. But God covered Egypt, the house of slavery, under the sea. And He wiped them out. He took them out of their slavery. Some of you may have seen the movie 12 Years a Slave. And it's a story about a man named Solomon Northup. And he is a free man from the north. But he gets captured and taken as a slave uh, in pre-Civil War, you know, uh, Alabama, Mississippi. And so he spends his life trying to escape from the slavery. And he's in slavery, once a free man. He's a slave for 12 years. And there's a scene at the end of the movie 
where he has a wicked, horrible slave driver. And one of his friends finally finds him. And when his friend finds him, he comes to Solomon. And Solomon sees him, and he starts running to his friend. And the slave master comes after him, and he starts to grab his clothes. And he grabs his clothes, and he says, I will fight for him. He's mine. And the friend looks at that evil, wicked slave master. And he says, as is your right to fight for him, as it will be my pleasure to bankrupt you in court, I have papers saying that he is free. And he takes his hands off of the slave master and he takes Solomon back with him. You see, Jesus, he says, get your hands off of my man, you wicked slave master that has sinned. It is not your master. I have papers showing that you, my people, are free. That I buried sin when I died. We have papers proving He is free. This is the song that we just sang. That He is our rescuer. He's our rescuer. That we are freed from sin forevermore. And this is exactly what God is telling His people Israel right now when He said that He covered the house of slavery of Egypt under the Red Sea. This is the grace of redeeming Israel from slavery. But also we see the grace that Israel possesses the promised land that they did not work for. Look at verse 13. He says in verse 13, Look, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards even that you did not plant. They didn't build the cities. They didn't labor in these fields. And yet, they enjoyed the produce of it. This is the grace of possessing the promised land and all the benefits of it that they did not work for. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, he says, what you work for, the wages of your sin is death. That's what you work for. But the free gift of God that is given to us apart from works is what? Eternal life. See, our salvation, our eternal life, our presence in God's promised land is all a gift of God that we did not work for. It is of His grace. You see, Paul, you see God here in these verses, He's been saying, look, you can trust me for my grace. There's this great hymn that I love, and it says this, Judge not the Lord by your feeble senses, but trust Him for His grace. And so God has been saying how His past history of grace, it shows His present trustworthiness. Therefore, therefore now come the stipulations. Therefore now comes the conditions of being in covenant with Him. Look at verse 14. He says, as a result of this, because you have received so much grace and you have been redeemed, now therefore, in verse 14, now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and faithfulness. It's always important in in interpretation, biblical interpretation, to understand uh, 
words. And one of the important words here is therefore. One thing that we oftentimes say in interpreting is, what's the therefore, therefore, in English? I don't think you can say uh, the same thing quite in Spanish. But what is the therefore, therefore? It's explaining that God was gracious in saving His people, and now as a result of it comes the commands to obedience. Because He has been trustworthy, now therefore you who are His servants, serve Him. This is what it's saying. It is the motivation. Trust Him for His grace. So now go serve Him. This is what the Scriptures in the New Testament says in 1 John 4, 19. We love because He first loved us. We love others. We love God because He first loved us. It is not saying here that we serve God so that maybe one day we might become saints, holy ones. It's the exact opposite. It is saying this, we are saying this, Jesus' blood makes you a holy one, which is the meaning for saint. That Jesus' blood, it makes you a saint. Now therefore, go and serve Him. The New Testament constantly describing Christians, describing you and me, calls us saints. This is who you are in Christ. You are a saint. Therefore, now go serve Him. Live like what you are. So the stipulations and the and the conditions now come. The stipulations basically are the requirements for those who are entering into the covenant. It's the requirement. It is the basic obligation that you owe the king. And the basic obligation that we owe the king is loyalty. That's the basic obligation to a servant people to a king is loyalty. You see, in 19 times in the book of Joshua, it says to serve the Lord. 19 times it says it. And what's really fascinating, if you like repetition of words, 14 times it says serve the Lord between verses 14 and 24. So almost all the time that it says serve the Lord, it's right here in this setting to say be faithful to the Lord. Look at verses 14 and 15. Just notice the repetition. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity. Put away the gods of your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so, service to the Lord here is basically the idea of loyalty, devotion, faithfulness to your Master. And this is the fundamental requirement of being in covenant with the Lord, is what he is saying here. It's really the image of a dog and his Master. Loyalty, devotion, faithfulness. The other day I was at... uh, Aaron Reyes' house and he he was coming out to see me and I saw his dogs that were very fierce 
And I said, they look really devoted to you. Would they bite my arms off if I got close? And he said, certainly they would. And I see other people's dogs in this church uh, who get Chick-fil-A, and that makes me wonder who is the master and who is the servant in that relationship. But the idea is that, it's exactly that, it's this fiercely devotion, loyalty. This is what it means to serve the Lord here. And this is exactly Jesus' same point. He's making the point, you have to serve one master. You can only serve one master. These gods, that gods, but we will serve the Lord. And Jesus says, you can only serve one master. As he puts it in Matthew, he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, is what Jesus is saying. And this is for us, oftentimes, the tension. It's like the Red Sox and the Yankees. You are devoted to one and you will despise the other. Why? Because they are rivals. They are at odds with each other. They command your full devotion. If you're from Boston, you hate the Yankees. If you love one, you will likely hate the others. And Kim says in the back, our Bostonian, she says, Amen. If you love one, you will likely hate the other because they're at odds with each other. The same cannot be said, actually, for right now for the World Cup, as you know, starts this week. It's not a rivalry between Team USA and Team Mexico because Team USA wasn't even good enough to make it into the World Cup. And so I read an article from ESPN saying to Americans, it's time for us to wake up and smell the tacos. The choice in that matter is not difficult. But when they are rivals, they fight for your devotion. And this is what God, Jesus is saying, is that your devotion is, fear, is, a, is a struggle between God or money. You must choose. And so how do we know which one we are oftentimes devoted to? How do we know we are devoted to serve the Lord or if we are devoted to serve the money or something else? A number of years ago, I was on a missions trip in Eastern Europe. And one of the days, we got to go um, shopping in Vienna, which is a really nice place. And when we're shopping, we walk around the street, and all of a sudden, my friends see this guy named Sean Paul. I'm like, Sean Paul, Sean Paul. And I'm like, who's Sean Paul? And they're like, he's a really famous rapper. So I said, okay, cool. So we got our picture with Sean Paul, and he's all blinged out in his stuff. And uh, as my good friend, Sean Paul, said in his song, I got my money on my mind and my mind on my money. Money on my mind and my mind on my money. You see, what you know, you know what you're devoted to by the preoccupation of your heart and your mind. This is what it is saying. It's about the preoccupation of your heart and your mind. This is what you are devoted to. That's why you cannot serve both. Your mind is going to be preoccupied with something. And you will serve it. 
But you see, our devotion to God will grow when we know that He is trustworthy. And that money or anything else will only lead us to a vain and futile life. And so he gives us the stipulations here for obedience, which is to serve the Lord, to be faithful to Him, to be loyal and devoted to Him completely and fully. And after these stipulations or these conditions for being in the covenant comes the curses for disobedience. This is the curses of what will happen to you if you are completely faithless to the king. You see, after the stipulations of loyalty comes the curses for forsaking the covenant. And we see that the Lord is very serious here about these curses. You notice verse 19, which is very perplexing for many people. It says, verse 19, Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you. See, this is perplexing for people because it's saying that God will not forgive their sins. But we know that God is a God who forgives sins. So what is going on in this passage? What is He saying? It's basically saying this. God is a God who keeps His covenant promises. God is a God who is trustworthy. He does not change. He does not change. So if you change and you don't come to Him, His holiness will be against you. Somebody quoted on this particular verse, he said, It is precisely because God's character does not change that His attitude to people changes when they turn to Him or against Him. Precisely because God's character, His holiness, His right jealousy does not change. His attitude to people change when they turn to Him or against Him. We were studying Jonah this morning, and that's exactly what we see in the second half of Jonah. Jonah brings the prophetic word, repent. Forty days and the city will be destroyed. And the king of Nineveh hears it, and he says to everybody in Nineveh, he says, let everybody turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. This is what the king of Nineveh says. And it says in verse 10 of chapter 3 of Jonah, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, he relented from the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. You see, we can, the point is we can trust His holiness. We can trust in His character. And if you do not come to Him, is what He is saying, He will not forgive. If you do not repent, He will not forgive because His character does not change. And He keeps all of His covenant promises. Even the ones that bring the threats of destruction. 
He does not change. So if we are running from Him, we should change. And so He takes the curses of the covenant very seriously. And then after that, finally, after the curses of the covenant for disobedient come the witnesses of the covenant and the depositing of the covenant documents by the temple. There are witnesses in a covenant. This is what it says is that uh, one of the commentaries, in a covenant ceremony, there are always witnesses. You ever been to a wedding before? You were a witness to a covenant. This is the case in marriage. It is in ancient covenants then that the covenant documents, they would also be deposited in or by the temple. And so there's witnesses. And the, the documents are placed next to the temple. And they also are witnesses. And so you notice in verse 22, they move to the stage where there are witnesses of the covenant. And Joshua says in verse 22, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve Him. And they said, we are witnesses. So the people are witnesses. But then it gets, there are even greater witnesses. In verse 27, it says, And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and he set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us because it has heard all the words of the Lord that He spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. You see, it was a stone. The great witness here was a stone that had heard all of the words of the Lord. You see, for us, the witness that we have that has heard all of the words of the Lord is the Bible. And so the Bible, then, just as it did for them, stands as a witness over against us at first. It stands as a witness to the holiness of God, how holy He is and how perfect and beautiful He is. And it also testifies how sinful and broken we are. It stands as a witness against us that we have broken God's law time and time again, that we have not been steadfastly loyal to Him, that we have not served Him even when we said that we would. It stands as a witness against us, piercing to our very heart. The Bible is a witness against us that we do not keep God's law, His Word, but it is a witness to the cross of Jesus. It tells us about the cross of Jesus because the Bible tells us that Jesus died upon the cross. That the cross then was a witness against Jesus Himself. Because you see, on the cross, Jesus bore the curse of breaking a covenant. Only covenant breakers deserve a cursed death on the cross. 
And the cross then stands as a witness against Jesus, where Christ Himself stands in your place as your covenant breaker representative. He stands for you who have broken it, even though He did not. As that hymn goes, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin, my sin upon His shoulders. It was my sin that held Him there until it was accomplished. You see, Christ stands for you as the covenant breaker. And so all of the curses of the covenant fall upon His head. The law breaking goes on His head. Your failure to serve God as you should falls upon Him. Your disloyalty and all of your sin falls upon the head of Christ. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin, so that we would become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus then becomes a witness for you. He is a witness for you that His blood covers you, that His obedience to the covenant, His loyalty, His service, His faithful service is as though it were yours. And God says of you then, you are my beloved child, my servant, and I am so pleased with you. He stands for you in the covenant as the breaker. And you stand in the covenant as the perfect law keeper, as the perfect servant in God's sight. Jesus is the witness for you. And then it goes on, and Jesus then, not only is He a witness for you, He gives you another witness. He gives us the Holy Spirit who is a witness for you. Because not only is the, is the Bible a witness against us, not only was the law a witness against them, they deposited the law. They deposited the words in the temple. What does the Holy Spirit do? Jesus sends us the Holy Spirit into our life, into your heart. And so the very law of God, the Word of God, is written upon your hearts. You see, Joshua says, incline your hearts to God. But they were unable to. And Jesus makes us have inclined hearts to God. He says, incline your hearts to God. And He can give you a heart that is inclined to it. Because He gives, He deposits the Word of God by the Holy Spirit into your hearts. This is the Holy Spirit who is a witness for you that the law of God is written on your heart so that you now you want to serve Him. You are inclined to serve Him. As Jeremiah 31 says about this beautiful reality that would come, that the law would be in your hearts. He says, I will put my law in them. I will write it upon their hearts. Or Ezekiel, as it says, I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new heart and I will put my Holy Spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and I will cause you to be careful to obey my rules. You see, Jesus is able to incline your hearts to serve God. He gives you the Holy Spirit who puts in you the heart with the very desire to say, I want to serve you. 
I want to serve you. I want to keep your law. Recently, this last week, I've been dealing with a friend um, who's struggling with a particular sexual sin. And we're talking about it, and he tells me, he says, you know, Jeff, he, didn't, he doesn't see it as a sin. And he says, you know what, Jeff, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law so that... Uh, he, he fulfilled the Old Testament law, which is for the Jews and not for the Christians. See, so he fulfilled the law so that now I don't need to keep those laws anymore about sexual morality. And what I wanted to tell him is you are close, but you are so far gone and wrong. It is not the case. You see, Jesus, what He has done is He has fulfilled the law, and He has forgiven us for our breaking of the law, so that He could then incline our hearts to want to keep the very law which is good. The Holy Spirit is deposited in our heart so that we would want to keep God's good laws, even though they may be hard. And so we say as a result, Lord, I want to serve you being celibate until marriage, as hard as that may be. Lord, I want to serve you by being more generous with my money. Lord, I want to serve you by giving more of my precious time for your ministry. Lord, I want to serve you. I want to serve you. I want to serve you because you have given me the Holy Spirit inclining my hearts to serve you because of what you have done for me. This is a heart that knows the work of the Lord. And verse 31 ends this way saying that Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known the work, all of the work that the Lord did for Israel. You see, when you know the redeeming work of God in Christ, when you know all the work of the Lord, then you will find the strength to serve Him, however difficult it may be. That is where the strength to courageously serve the Lord comes from. Let us pray. Lord, would you make us strong and courageous even as we stand on the banks of the River Jordan waiting to come into our eternal inheritance. Give us strength to fight the battles that you still have for us as Christians in your kingdom, as we fight the battles in our own hearts, as we fight the battles as a church for the city of El Paso. Give us strength to serve you with hearts that are inclined to you. We pray all of these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.